Have you ever wondered to yourself if you should leave or quit something? Maybe you want to leave your job, or quit your degree, or do you even want to leave your own home? The thing is, we all leave things, often not knowing if it was the right decision or not. This podcast talks to people who have made the decision to leave, and each of them have their own unique story, both challenges and triumphs. Some left to try different things, others even return to where they were originally left from. My name is Braden Green, and I left university to pursue my radio and podcasting dream. And this is Leavers. Leaving your home to go live in another town is one thing, but to leave your home to go live in another country is an entirely different story altogether. It's a story that former Socceroo Robbie Cornthwaite knows well after moving from Australia to go play football in Korea and then again to go play in Malaysia of all places. But nothing could prepare Robbie for some of the challenges that he would face. I'll warn you now, this story can be confronting, but it's one heck of a story on yet another episode of The Leavers Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Leavers Podcast. My name is Braden Green, of course, and I'm your host. But today I'm joined by former Socceroo, former Adelaide United, and former captain of the Western Sydney Wanderers, and a bit of an international career as well. Please welcome Robbie Cornthwaite. Thank you very much, mate. I appreciate that welcome. <laughs> Anytime, mate. It's an honour to have you. It really is. And let's start where we always start, mate. Why did you leave Adelaide United? Well, I suppose the main reason is just to go overseas and to test myself at the highest level um, that I possibly could. And at the time, I was, funnily enough, I wasn't actually really playing for Adelaide at the time. I was on the bench most of the time. And then when I got the opportunity to go to to South Korea, kind of came a little bit out of the blue. And um, yeah, I was surprised and maybe a few other people, but obviously went over there and uh, made the best of it. Nice, mate. Was it a hard decision to leave since you you spent a fairly long time there? Let's be honest, man. You know, you know. I know you're on the bench, but it's yep. obviously still a hard decision to leave Adelaide. I imagine spending so much time there, getting the relationships and everything. What yep. was it like? Was it hard? Uh, it was. Um, it was probably a little bit more difficult just due to the fact that I was going to a country where I didn't know a single person. I had been there a couple of times before to play games in the Champions League, and they were just sort of one-off games. So we used to kind of go there and we used to joke, oh, how much money would it take for you to come play here? Because, you know, there was, it was like another world to us. So to get the opportunity and, and to think, well, I'm going to a, a town and a country I've, I don't know, I don't know any of the people, I don't know the language, um, it can be pretty daunting. But it was an opportunity to go and play, as I said, at a, in a much better league, um, much more money, much better chance of playing for the Socceroos. And, yeah, it was something that I just had to do. And, and obviously I'm grateful that I did it. When you were over in South Korea for those games you were talking about, did you ever think, yeah, I'm going to be here one day? Was, was there ever a little bit of confidence or was it just, no way, nah, not, not a chance? Well, you sort of hope. I mean, they, they changed some rules around Aussies playing in South Korea. Once Australia became part of the Asian Confederation, sort of opened it up for Aussies to be able to go there. Before that, you didn't really see too many. And then once that happened, we saw an influx of particularly central defenders like myself. So a couple of guys that went a year or two before me did really well, had a sort of created an opportunity for me. And I had another previous offer that I, that didn't eventuate. And then, yeah, this one came up sort of out of the blue. It was a Thursday. The season was over in Australia and I was at the travel agents and I was getting ready to book a trip to Bali uh, for a holiday. And I just, <laughs> Very Australian, I, yeah, and I said, Oh, well, let's just go get some lunch first and have a think about it. And um, an agent called me out of the blue and just said, oh, I've got an offer for you to go to South Korea. Would you be interested? And then on Monday, I was there. Literally <laughs> that quick. Yeah, that yeah. is nuts. Yep. 
I guess the question is, how does this opportunity come about? Is it your manager just doing so many things to get you anywhere? Is it just, you know, clubs offering themselves? What is that process? Because let's admit that the everyday fan doesn't really know what's going on behind the scenes, do they? No, they don't. Um, quite often what it is, and, and it was the case for mine, is Adelaide had done really well in the Champions League previously. So, you know, teams had seen me play and um, was maybe aware of who I was. But what tends to happen is a, a Korean team will go to a Korean agent and say, this is the profile of a player we're looking for. We want an Aussie or an Asian defender. We want him to be tall, we want him to be strong. This is what we look for. And then he'll go out to his network. So he'll go to an Aussie agent and say, this is what they want. What have you got on offer? And he might pitch him two, three, four players. And then he'll go back to the club and the club will kind of look through them, maybe watch some videos, sometimes fly to Australia and watch them play and basically pick them that way. So it's not like they come and handpick me. They don't go, we want Robbie Cornthwaite. They go, we want someone of that mould. And then there's always two agents involved and they sort of build together a... It's like a house and land package. It's like they put, <laughs> put all the money in a pile and say, this is for the transfer fee, this is for the agent's fee, and this is for the salary over this many years and sort of divide it up um, in that way. And if the club wants more transfer fee, then sometimes that will either come out of the agent's fee or out of the, the yearly salary. Does it feel weird that you're fitting so much a brief and they're not not wanting you as much. Do you know what I mean? Does it feel weird to be like, all right, I'm 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 actually just this to them. I'm tall. I can do this and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, kind of. Um, I suppose if it wasn't like that, maybe they wouldn't want me. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, some players would want more money than they were offering or some players, you know, for other reasons don't want to go to South Korea if they've got a family. Not that you can't take your family there because it's a wonderful place to live. But yeah, a lot of a lot of fans um, out there think that they go and target a, sp- a specific player when more often than not it's just a you know we want a centre back. These are the attributes that we want, um, and go and find us three or four that we can look at. So yeah, oh. that uh, if I if they picked me out of all those silhouettes <laughs> that they started with, then I'm more than happy. It's like a FIFA when you're trying to get those characters. <laughs> um, do you think your height helped you in that as well? Because I mean, it is one of you're the equal third tallest player <laughs> to represent the Socceroos. I yeah. mean, it is quite a unique trait that you have and mm. it obviously gave you some advantages. Do you think that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, the Koreans are actually quite big. Partic- I mean, in general, probably not. But when you're talking about elite athletes and elite sport, they're quite big and they're quite solid. The other thing is I'd pretty much be playing against foreigners every week. So all the foreign players were either defenders or f- strikers. So pretty much every week I'd be marking a striker anyway. So um, obviously being tall, I had a, you know, one of the, my key attributes was in the air, my heading and all that sort of stuff. So they love a defender that can score. Um, and for whatever reason, just throughout my career, my timing or whatever, I just, I knew where to be and I scored plenty of goals as a defender. Um, so immediately, I think I scored in my first three or four games and that sort of like endears you to them. They, they love that. And I scored regularly while I was there. So um height certainly helped but as we know tim cahill he wasn't the tallest <laughs> bloke in the world and he scored numerous headers you have to know where to be as well so yeah sniff out a bit of a goal so talk to me about that decision to leave you've obviously got to talk to you know your family in the situation you've got to talk to your team James. you got to talk to the, the coach i mean what's that like who's the first person that you tell that i'm out here i mean how does that conversation even happen 
Yeah, I mean, the the agent that took me, when he called me, I actually never spoke to him before. So he'd kind of just gone, okay, Robbie's a guy that fits the bill. He's available. Let me call him and see if he'd be interested. So nut out the terms of the deal. Um, my partner at the time spoke to her about it, spoke to my family. Um, and you weigh it all up, don't you? I mean, what club are you going to? Are they financially stable? Because other some parts of Asia are notorious for you not getting paid. Um, there's you know, cases in FIFA all the time. So am I going to a club that I'm going to get my money? Um, am I going to a livable city? Am I going somewhere where regardless of how much money I'm getting paid, I, I can be happy? Um, how good is the team? How competitive are they? All those sorts of things. And once you decide you want to go, you almost then have to call Adelaide who I was, and say, you know, what's the level of interest in you selling this player? Like, do you want to keep him? If you want to sell him, how much do you want to sell him for? Yeah. Um, and, and all these types of things. So I ended up speaking to the club. I said, I want to leave. Um, uh, like I said, at the time, under that coach, I wasn't playing a lot. So they were quite open to me going. And then it was just about making sure they got a transfer fee that they were happy with. And um, yeah, like I said, on the way, you've got to pass a medical when you get there, of course. So make sure you're, <laughs> you're not injured. Um, and, and yeah, they're, they're the sort of thing. And then, I mean, maybe we'll touch on it later. I'm not sure. When I left the Wanderers to go to Malaysia... It was kind of had to be done in secret. Um, so I'd left without telling any of the boys. They that's, had no idea. That's nuts. And then when I got there and I'd signed, I'd sort of text the group to say, hey, I'm gone. Ooh, so We're definitely going to touch on that one now, man. <laughs> I mean, far out. I was yeah. leaving that till like the second, like this, maybe, you know, two thirds in. But whew. <laughs> Wow. I the, mean, the, the, the thing is, I'll just touch on it. The thing is, there's a lot of money involved in agents and moving players. So... A coach of a team, the president of a team, the football director of the team, they're all trying to do the deal with their own agent friends, basically, for lack of a better way of thinking. <laughs> and maybe they're trying to bring players that the coach doesn't want. That's, that's, that's so such a political game. My, in my circumstance, it was like the coach wanted me, the other players that they wanted had fallen through. So he's like, get on a plane, get here now, just come straight to the hotel and... <laughs> Don't let it out of the bag because they won't have any time to get anyone else. That's... So basically just like slide in the back door and, and just I'm there and everyone thinks, okay, he's signed. He's, he's, he's our new player. And they've just gone, oh, that's not the guy we wanted. Well, too but too late now. That's <laughs> nuts. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. I mean, I, I really can't get what – I can't wait to get into all this. Mm. I mean, it's just – it feels like – it's not. I don't want to say heartless, but it just seems so easy. I guess in in, yeah. in football of all sports, you know, yeah. there is so much movement. Mm. And does that make you a more resilient person, being able to do these big moves literally so quickly and secrecy sometimes? Yeah. Even I think so. I think so. I mean, Asia is a very um, fragile market for players, and I'll choose my words carefully. Not everything's <laughs> always above board, so. By moving players as often as possible, they tend to make more money, if that makes sense. So even if you're doing quite well, they might come to you and say, hey, um, we're bringing someone else. And you can't understand that, but they have to move people to make money. Talk to me about just t telling your family now, like, all right, Korea. <laughs> Here we go. You know, we're moving a long way away. What's their reaction to all this? Are they excited? Are they nervous? Yeah, I mean, they want me – well, they they were used to having me around. I, I didn't live at home, but, yeah, they were able to come and watch every single week. 
uh, watch me play all my home games for pretty much the first six, seven years of my my career, and yeah. then to say, okay, I'm going to move and you know, ten, twelve hour flight away, um, was obviously a little bit of a shock. But they knew, knowing the, the the football landscape, they knew it was a fantastic opportunity for me. They knew if I went there and did well, I could set myself up financially, and also, like I said, increase my chances of playing for Australia. Um, and they were really excited. They were already thinking planning their holiday. They're already thinking, oh, we've never been to South Korea. We'd love to go there and, uh, <laughs> and check all that out. So, yeah, it was a little bit emotional at the airport. I remember saying goodbye, more so because I was just like, where am I going? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, um, but any big step in life, even if you know it's the right one, you sort of question it, I suppose, and question yourself. But, yeah, they were very supportive and, and more than happy to see me go. So how much do you physically know when I guess you're on that plane, how much do you know about South Korea? How much do you know about the club, the mm. the, the coach, the players? I yeah. mean, there's so many things that must be running through your head at that point. Yeah, well, the players I knew basically nothing about. There was maybe like two or three players that I knew a tiny little bit about. The club is basically just like a Google search, Wikipedia, <laughs> find out a little bit of the history. So the town exists basically because of um, a company called Posco, and it's the biggest... They've, the town existed because it had the second biggest steel factory in the world there. <laughs> so it was basically the factory, 100,000 people in this town, and nearly all of them worked at the factory. And then they just had a team there. So it wasn't like I was living in Seoul where there's like 30 million people. I was living in like a country town. So there was literally uh, probably five foreigners in the whole town. So I stood up like a sore thumb. <laughs> um, so all that sort of came into my thinking. Like I, f- I actually feel like I got the authentic career yeah. i got like the real career experience i'd go to little like privately owned um cafes and restaurants there was no cinema uh, there was no like mcdonald's or anything it was just like all there was farming around it you know so i felt like i got to see the real um career rather than the big city obviously i saw that as well but to, the small town suited me maybe it reminded me of adelaide i don't know <laughs> just get around and get to know everyone say hello to your local coffee dealer <laughs> did it feel real tribal then i mean if this is mainly just a factory mm. with that many people it must have felt like the pressure would have been on i imagine i mean is it everything to them or is uh, it not? no well that's the thing like koreans absolutely love football but they don't really go and watch unless it's the national team so well, that's... i think my <laughs> games on average was only like four thousand people Wow, I suppose ultimately it's probably just a tax write-off for the, co- for the, <laughs> for the company. Uh, I don't know, but there's you, not a opinion. No, well, you, you'd have to think like, you know, they're paying. They've got forty to forty-five players in the team, and their salaries, like the the, the wage salary is probably like ten million. Compare that to like two and a half million of the A League, and they're only getting three thousand people to the game. Yeah, you know, like it's it's. They actually own two teams in the same league. So I'm not sure whether that's a conflict of interest. But yeah, surely. <laughs> yeah. But getting around town, yeah, I'd get pretty much recognized every day. I had a few sort of billboards and all that kind of stuff, which was kind of cool. Got some photos at home of that. <laughs> so what was the biggest experience of culture shock over there? Like even just off field, what was the biggest thing? You went, whoa, that's different. Mm. I've been pretty like adaptable. Yeah, to these sort of things like nothing really shocked me but certainly the level of like discipline and respect to your elders um, you know like an older player even if he's 30 saying to a 29 year old hey can you get me a drink like he just gets up and get it 
It's not said <laughs> it in a way of like, hey, get me a drink, like you're my slave. It's a real respect thing. It's almost like a family thing. Like um, the amount of times like a younger younger player would clean an older player's room or just, you know, just it's just normal. Um, but also at the same time, I saw young players disrespect old players and they would literally get clipped around the ear like <laughs> they'd get a slap or they'd get a punch or, um, yeah, it's not tolerated at all. Um, and everyone lives in a clubhouse. So from six years old all the way to the professional team, like the fully grown men, all live in the same compound. Far out, they would Breakfast, know each lunch, other. lunch and dinner provided every single day, 24-7 masseuses, doctors, laundry ladies, um, bus drivers, all live there. The only ones that didn't live there were foreigners. So me and my three or four other foreigners, we had a room there. So we could stay there. We could eat breakfast, lunch and dinner there. Um, we could do anything we wanted there. There was like saunas, hot tubs, all that kind of stuff. But then also I had an apartment where I could just go and stay stay there as well. So so many different things like that. Food, some of the food like eel and, and stuff like that <laughs> and octopus. And I, I loved all the food. Um I've spoken about this before. When I first went there, I sort of like clung on to the foreigners because I thought, well, they're more like me. They speak a yeah. bit of English and, and that. But over probably after about six months, I realized like, oh, I actually want to be friends with the locals. And I started hanging out with them a lot more, going to all their restaurants. And, and I ended up staying for four years and the rest of the foreigners pretty much got turned over every six to 12 months. Um, but they kind of like stuck together yeah. to themselves i found it much better just to become part of the furniture and just become like a local and it sounds weird but being um just fitting in you stay a lot a lot longer you go, it goes a long way you know like maybe you're not playing that well and they'll go oh he's, he's a good guy he's like look at him like yeah. he fits in so well we might bring someone else in whose personality is like he might be an asshole yeah and so, i think is that one of the the big things i guess you can take from it is like if if you accept their culture and want to be mm. a part of it, 100%. they're all they're all going to you know they're all going to respect you, I guess in that case. Yeah, for sure. Um, numerous Aussies have had opportunities to go to Korea, and they text me and they say, well, you know, how'd you stay so long? I say, just be a local, like learn the language. You know, some of the foreigners like they won't even use chopsticks. Like they'll be like, no, I want a knife and fork. Like use chopsticks, learn the language. Like, um, you know, buy buy drinks or you know. You buy things when you when you're traveling and you go to the, the you stop at like the mini mart or whatever you just go in there and buy everyone an ice cream or like whatever you know like little tiny things that cost you nothing yeah um invite them out for dinner if it's your birthday go like say hey we're going for dinner like for my birthday or whatever just invite them for coffee just yeah i had a couple of really close korean mates when i was there it was it was it was great nice did you did you find difficulty in learning the language or anything like that or well initially i had a translator yep like lived at the club uh, he spoke Spanish, Portuguese, and English. Far out. So we had a Colombian, I think two or three Brazilians and me. So he'd have to translate for all of us. And because there was more of them, I probably just got a little bit less um, yeah. unless they were speaking to me directly. But he'd like stand on the field, like basically next to me on the field or on the side and come running on at training. and like. But after about a year, I didn't have one anymore. So the last three years I had one, um, I had no translator. And, and they can speak a bit of broken English and their English got better. A lot of the Koreans, there's a couple that are okay, but I expected them to be better. I thought, I don't know, everyone knows how to speak English, don't they? Or at least <laughs> thought like, I thought they would have learned in school and they'd have a level of English that we could get us by. But some literally spoke none, um, which was fine. And, you know, we, um, 
we got by on a bit of broken English and uh, my Korean got better and yeah, no, it was it was a good experience. What was that like on the pitch? Like I can't imagine how tricky that must be with a coach barking orders yeah. and then it's like, all right, now we've got to translate. Hope that I understand the translation mm. and then execute on the pitch. I well, mean, how hard is that? It was it was like a comedy where the coach would talk <laughs> for like five minutes and then the translator would just say to me, oh, he said do it quicker. I was like, well, he was just speaking for five minutes. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but the, wor- the words that I learned first, I mean, like my Korean is terrible. But if it's like situational, like something to do with soccer or in a restaurant or like whatever, it's good. So the first thing I learned was all the football terms, you know, like left, right, forward, back, turn, man on, um, you know. I mean, like shoot and pass up, across <laughs> are the same. They say, it, they say it in English. They don't have a Korean word for it. So, um, yeah, I picked up that real quick. I used to just write everything down in my phone and just read it every single night. Um, I never did lessons or, or anything like that, but... Yeah, it was it. You can kind of play dumb as well when you make a mistake. <laughs> if you make a mistake and they have a go, you say, "Oh, sorry, I didn't. I, I didn't understand what you're telling me." <laughs> Did you enjoy the competition over there? Did you like the on-field atmosphere, or was it just like the the competition that you were at? The level was mm. it different? I mean, what was was the play style very different? How would you explain it? It's very. It's it's much faster. Yep. Than the A League, um, and. It's very technical, as in the players are very skillful, but also I find the games quite scrappy. Yeah. So they have all this technical ability, but tactically I think it wasn't as good as Australia. So most of the games are like a bit of a battle, uh, which kind of suited me because of physical, you know, physical type of player. Um, and I probably am not as technical, certainly not as them. So that kind of suited me in a way. And... The weather over there is extreme. Like in winter, it can be minus 10. And then in summer, it can be 40 with like 95% humidity. So it's like really varying degrees of um, of climate. Ooh. So in summer, like late in a game, it's like playing in North Queensland. Like you're dying, you're <laughs> drenched in sweat. And a lot of mistakes would happen like late in a game. It wouldn't be uncommon to see like two goals in the last 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> and not through anything other than just players are exhausted. They're, they've... They're like they are actually like robots over there, like mach- absolute machines. They train like no one else, like you've ever seen. Um, and there's a little bit of that old school, like just run, you know. Just <laughs> today, we're just going to run until I say you're not run- just stop. <laughs> and they just do it, you know. There's someone older than me told me to do it, so I'm just going to do it. What about your own performances? Were you happy with how you performed over there? Were you happy with your stats or anything like that? Or do you wish you could have done things better? Talk to me about how you saw it from a personal point of view. Yeah, I was pretty happy. I mean, when I when I had the opportunity to go, a lot of people probably, including myself, to be honest, was sort of thinking like, oh, why him? You know, like he's not playing and, and all these sorts of things. So I originally signed for two years and a lot of people had been – had gone to Asia and come back after like six months, like hard to survive. And at that time, although I'd played like six, seven years in the A-League, I still didn't really believe that I was good enough. So going over there, I think it was kind of a bit of like, okay, I really need to buckle down and like become better or else I'm not going to survive. And I think that was probably one of the first times in my career where I learned how adaptable I am. And how I can sort of just fit into any situation and make make it work. So after that first year, they offered me a new three-year deal straight after that. So I think that was like a real proof of like 
okay, I did well. Like I did exactly what I was meant to do. Um, in terms of stats is like, yeah, scored goals, scored more goals than any other defender, ended up playing nearly 100 games. Uh, maybe I did play 100 games. I'm not exactly sure. Um, got got an opportunity with the Socceroos. Um, I know people don't like to talk about it, but made good money, which is important. I don't care what anyone says. It is important. Um and yeah, just had so many wonderful experiences. So I don't think I could have done more. I would have maybe once I finished playing with that team, I may I would have liked to have stayed and gone to another team. But there were some rules around like there's no such thing as a free transfer over there. So even though I was off contract, if I went to another team, they'd still have to buy me. Yeah. So that kind of like I think if it was for free, like it is in Australia and other countries, I probably would have gone to another team. Yeah. But because it wasn't, they probably went, Oh, we can get someone else, you know. So yeah, anyway. Exactly. So let's be honest, the money situation, mm. it's a little bit taboo, but I think it's important to talk about. How yep. much does that come into your decision making? Because let's admit the A League isn't probably the best earner. Uh, compared to other leagues around the world. I mean, how much does it come into into play? I think massively, honestly. Yeah. I think for Australians in particular, in Australia, playing in the A-League, massively. I think there's a number of players, particularly when you get to sort of that 26, 27, where it's like, okay, I'm not young anymore. I'm probably not going to get some offer to go to Europe. I'm not going to go on trial in Europe. Unless you're like knocking on the door of the Socceroos or you're going to get into the Socceroos, I think almost every Australian A-League player would want to go to Asia, even to a lesser league. You know, like I played in Malaysia for two and a half years. It's nowhere near as good as the A-League and you get paid twice as much. <laughs> so they'd all, they'd all be thinking, uh, like I know for a fact, players would be like, can you get me a deal in, in Malaysia? Can you get me a deal here? Or can you ask my agent if there's an opportunity for me? And they'd all go to a team and a league far superior, uh, sorry, weaker than the A-League if it meant more money. I mean, it just, it, it, you can't even question that if that's No, I mean, the sad thing is, is like, and don't get me wrong, like blessed to do what we do, but you can play 15 years in the A-League, 300 games, and as soon as you retire, within three to six months, you need, you need a job. Like you need a full-time job. You can't afford to just like sit back and go, oh, sweet, made heaps <laughs> of money. I'm on easy street now. Like it's a great life, but it doesn't, it gives you a head start maybe depending on how much you, you earn. I think the average is only about 110, 120. And if you're living in Sydney and you're renting and you're paying half of that in tax and you pay, like, there's, you've got nothing to show at the end. Is that – how do you explain that to fans? Because it's always an interesting relationship. I look mm. at a lot of different sports and there's like – it seems to sometimes there can be this unease with fans knowing how much people earn, for example. If they yep. know – we look at people like – the amount of money that Messi on is insane mm. and they can't relate to them anymore because it's, you know, it's just not fathomable. So do players understand how much they earn compared to the everyday Yeah, joke? well, this is, this, is what, this is the point I was about to make. Like, don't, don't get me wrong, $120,000 a year is a lot of money. Like, it's a, it's a, good, it's a good living. Um, but it's not, like you say, it's not $300,000 a week. Like what makes headlines around the world. Yeah. There's no different to say like the NBL. Yeah. You look at like the NBA and you're like, oh, Ben Simmons is getting $200 million a year. Like the NBL was probably get paid less than the A-League players. And full-time professional, you live in your dream, you've got an opportunity to do all these things, you get treated really well, um, endorsements, you know, like sponsored by Nike, you're getting free boots, all that kind of stuff. But it's not 
you know, they're not millionaires. They still have to work when they retire and work hard. I mean, it really is amazing. It's like mind-boggling just how much it comes into it. And then I guess, do you think Australians that decide to travel you know, overseas and go play in different leagues, are they ready for it? Are they ready for, one, the money difference and then the skill difference as well? Or do you think they just go on a bit blind and it can sometimes be a bad thing because they're just like, they're not accepting. Like, Because from your stories, clearly see, you know, being able to adapt is your strengths, you know. So what was your thoughts on that? What is the mindset of a player who might not be able to adapt as well as you can? Yeah, I think... Um I mean, I never went to Europe, so I can't really speak, but a lot of the younger players that go to Europe, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, most of them come back quite quickly. And you hear some of the older Socceroo boys that have made it into the Premier League and that's basically saying like the A-League or that, that, you know, that fallback didn't exist when they were coming through. So they'd go to Europe and they'd have to make it. Otherwise, they'd be coming back to Australia to a semi-professional league. And maybe it's a little bit too easy for some of them now. What tends to happen is like a young boy who's doing well, goes to Europe, um, plays a few little games here and there and, and then doesn't quite make it. And then when he comes back to the A-League, he's on like 150 grand more because he's been to Europe and it's like everyone, you know, it's like a, a supply and demand. Everyone wants him. So the, the price gets driven up when really he hasn't done anything. Um, and I think a lot of the older generation would like to see them sort of stick it out and try to carve out a career um, in Europe, even if it means they're making less money for, for a little while. For me, it's different because I'm going to Asia as an established professional. I'm 26 yeah, um, and I'm a man. I'm ready to play. It's not like I'm developing still, although there was still a lot of improvement to be had. It's, it's a different thing. It's more about just sort of fitting in and adapting. Um, and in like even in Malaysia, the the money's great. Like I say, I don't want to make this all about money because it's not. It's <laughs> dollars, just trying dollars, to highlight. Dollars. You know, like I would be showering under a garden hose. You know, like the facilities. <laughs> the facilities were pretty terrible. You know, there was a tap on the side of the change rooms with a little hose, and you just like hose yourself off and get in the car. Like, or sometimes I'd be like, oh, just get get in the car and have a shower when I get home. Like. We're here. We got great facilities. Get looked after really well. Where over there, you probably have you don't get the best of everything, um, and you still have to be able to perform. Yeah, it, it must be like a shock to you. I mean, especially coming from what you're talking about with Korea and everything yeah. like that as well. Yep. Um, do you think being older helped in that situation, moving as well, just going to through the the whole Korean experience? Would you have been able to do it if you were younger? You think? Or? Um, I think. I mean, one of the difficulties would have been, you know, a lot of the younger boys live at home with their parents. Yeah. Then they move to a country overseas and, you know, they're either on their own, they got to cook, they got to clean, they got to, you know, do all their own time management and, and washing and, and all that kind of stuff. And so some of them love it. They adapt, they grow up really quickly and then others maybe find it more difficult. Um, yeah, for me being a bit older and a bit more resilient, like, I don't know. When you're a professional athlete, you have a confidence about you, obviously, most of the time. And to walk into a dressing room with like 40 or 50 blokes that you've never seen in your life and just be like, oh, hey, I'm here, like, <laughs> and feel comfortable, um, that can be quite daunting. One of the things that I became really good at was sitting in a room, whether it was 10 Koreans or 50 Koreans, and, and not understanding anything that was being said, <laughs> but being completely comfortable. Where at the start, I'd be thinking, oh, are they, are they talking about me? Like, uh, 
are they are they saying like I did something shit on the weekend or like I made a mistake or especially if I did make a mistake like you know are they saying like oh what's this guy doing here but then I learned to just like sort of find comfort in just sitting there and just thinking well yeah I'm comfortable in this scenario now which which is which is quite powerful really I suppose wow it's amazing because I can think of so many people that would just bow under that pressure really I mean it's ridiculous so I mean. We should really probably get into the next bit, mate. I mean, you're back in Australia now, Western Sydney. I mean, how does this opportunity come back? I mean, is it the same sort of thing? Do you want to come home? What's going on here? Um, well, I went to Malaysia after Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I stayed there for a year and a half. And then um, I'll, I'll get right into the story because this is a very um, sort of important story to me. And I'm going to be telling this story a lot going forward. So when I was in Malaysia, my wife was pregnant. And we actually had a baby that passed away. Yeah. So everything that surrounded that kind of it didn't make me play bad football. Like, but I went back to training straight away. My wife went back to Australia. I was on my own for two, three months, just sort of not talking to anyone. And you know, we see all this stuff about mental health, and I wasn't depressed. Like, I wasn't any anything along those lines. But I didn't talk about all the things that were sort of eating away at me. Um, and then it kind of just came to a head where I was a bit injured, wasn't playing that well, motivation was probably lacking, um, and the club decided that they wanted to move me on. So once that happened, then we started to look at options. Australia was always an option, and Western Sydney were the ones who said, yep, we'd love to have you. Yeah, it's just... And it's a hard story, I can mm. imagine, to talk about, man. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to talk about it. Like, honestly, I mean, like, um, yeah, I, I suppose the thing that was sort of really difficult to me wasn't the passing, it was like all the things I had to do after, you know, like to, to, just straight to the point. Like, I put her in her coffin, I took her to the crematorium myself because we had no family there. And I took her to the morgue and I was like, fuck, I don't want her to be here. So I organized all that stuff to happen straight away that day, like an hour or two later. So my wife was still in hospital and I was like, I'm going to go and do all this. And she was like, yeah, go. So I just went and did all that on my own. And then it was from there where it was like, oh, geez, that was heavy. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then I just didn't, didn't really tell anyone about it and just kind of just kept it to myself. And then, yeah, just sort of try to bury it um, and didn't really deal with it for a long time. So... Yeah, it's probably only recently that I probably just like decided, you know, what, I'm going to start talking about it. Um, I've spoken about it in the past, but proper talking about it where I'm like, this is how I dealt with it and it was wrong. Like, you know, it ate me alive and then, yeah, don't do that. Basically, like talk to people about it. So, yeah, I can talk about it now, which is good. That's, that's insane, mm. man. That shows <laughs> the strength. I mean, yeah. I mean, I can't – I don't think many people can imagine mm. – the pain of doing that. I mean, yes, doing it at the time is terrifying, but I can't mm. imagine the time after. Like, you must have, it must have been on your mind. Yeah. Well, I used to tell the story because I thought I, it's, it's like, um, I'm trying to phrase it, it's like getting self worth from the wrong place. So I used to tell people that story purely so they would think, oh, how strong is this guy? But it wasn't healthy for me to tell it like that because I just, bringing it up purely so I could get something from that person um, where now I've sort of let go of that and it's kind of just like it's just a story now 
Um, and I'm happy, like I said, I'm happy to talk about it. Some days is more difficult. Um, but yeah, from that, my wife went back to Australia for a few months. I was there by myself, wasn't playing great. And then, like I said, they wanted me to go. Opportunity come come up to go to Western Sydney, which at the time was like just lost the grand final. So I was like, yep, great chance to go back, be closer to family, live in a more familiar place where it's easier for my wife and my daughter. Um, and so, yeah, that was an opportunity that I wanted to take. Do you still think about that child? That- yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. Um, at the time, you're like, oh, I want to feel like this forever. I'm never going to f- – I don't want to feel like it's not important or like just meant – like I'm talking about it now. I don't want to like mention it just in passing or I want to be, th- you know, but it's just not like that. Over time, it's just sort of like oh, – I suppose it doesn't go away, but things just become easier yeah. like anything. Yeah. That's amazing. So – what do you do now? What do you do now in that situation? How do you? How would you help someone else going through that period? Um, to be honest, like just talk to people. Yep. Talk to people. Like I've I've had other things that happened since, which I won't go into. But um, you know, I'm 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 actually planning a like a, a keynote or a, a talk around this space. So I don't want to get too much into it. But um, yeah, I think. It's not for me. It's not about men, and it's not about men's mental health. I know that is a big topic at the moment, and it's not about me being depressed or anything like that because I wasn't. It's just purely if you don't talk about things, then they'll eat you up, um, and they'll just wear you away, and all that kind of stuff. And now, like this, I'm like an open book. Like I said to you before we started, I'm like, you can ask me about anything, and you might have known about this, and you probably maybe still thought, oh, I won't ask him. True. I knew a little bit. It was yeah. just it was just interesting. I'm like, you want to talk about different things in a post, but I can see yeah. how important it is to you. So yeah. it's it's an interesting battle, I suppose. Of you want to say the same thing, but you could pre- present it in different ways, and that's yeah. why I was hoping that you'd speak about your keynote because yeah. we really want to promote that as yeah. well. And it's obviously really important. So do you mm. have a bit of a plan how you want that to go? Or? Um, yeah, I do, but (laughs) is it written down? No, well, it is, it is. I can't, like I said, I can't get into it. All will be revealed in, in, in some time, but, um, yeah, it's just a share really. Like I'm, I'm so open now. I think although I'm just telling you, I can't tell you. you (laughs) Yeah. Nothing's really off limits for me. I'm happy to talk about anything. So I think, um, you know, even like you've had Andrew Hayes on the show, like we have, we have some great chats, like about things that maybe we wouldn't talk about in general and you just sort of bring them up and, you know, like I play a lot of golf now and one of the guys hadn't been at golf for uh, four weeks and I just all of a sudden thought, that's a bit odd. Like he's usually here every week. So I text him, where you been? Like, is everything all right? And then, you know, then he opens up a little bit. So it's just like those little things where I'm just like, I'm, I'm maybe more in tune to like, when something's wrong with someone else. Yeah. And it's also being an athlete and being surrounded by 20, 30 guys every day. It's like you pick up little things from these guys some days and you're just like, is everything all right, man? He's like, oh, you know, this happened or this happened and you just kind of get a feel for it. And I've always thought that I'm approachable. Um, so, yeah, I, I've opened up some dialogues with some really key people in my life, like guys. Um, and it's been, yeah, it's been awesome. Wow. Amazing, man. I mean, it's such a transformation. I think that's yeah, the very thing. Sure. And I think it's definitely going to make a difference in yeah. people's lives. So we'll, we'll bring it back to football, I suppose. So in what's the biggest difference, I suppose, between Western Sydney Wanderers and Adelaide United? Two very different clubs, two very different cultures, I think would be yeah. fair to say, yep. two different areas, of course, geographically mm. and everything. So what's the biggest difference for you you've found? 
Well, the thing that I found was, I mean, it was six years that I was away. So I felt like the league in general had like progressed a lot in that time, like far more professional fitness levels were much higher. And I had Tony Popovich as my coach, who's yeah. like attention to details, like incredible. Um, you either sink or swim. And initially I probably sunk a little bit. Um, like he sent me like, you know, I'd played for Australia and he sent me back to the youth team. Like I was playing with like 17 year old kids that had never played a game in the A-League because he was like, you're not doing this right. And I could have easily just gone, oh, well, this guy's a dickhead. Like I'm just going to pack it in or just collect my salary. But I was like, okay, cool. So I worked really hard on those things. And then eventually he gave me another opportunity. And then like within three months, like he made me captain. So I obviously proved myself. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's probably an obvious one, but is it a hit to the ego when you're out there with the 17-year-olds? I mean, what's that like? Is it, are you embarrassed to go on the pitch? It's just like, oh, you know, come on. Like, well, this know. is... <laughs> I, I, I've had this mindset and it probably stemmed from when I first started. It's like I, I'm always wanting to do something that I think other people can't do. And it's not about like piece of skill or whatever. It's like, all right, he sent me to the youth team. Most guys would sulk. So I'm going to be the best player on the park. So everyone is going, what is he doing here? So I remember like I'd prepare for a youth team game on a Sunday afternoon in front of like 50 people as if I was preparing for the Socceroos. And I'd get there and I'd hear the young boys saying, oh, did you watch the Man United game last night? And I'd be thinking to myself, that game was at 2 a.m. Yeah. Like why are you watching the game? Like that's just ridiculous. Like I'm not watching the game and I've had – I've played 300 games and you've not played one and you're staying up all night to watch the game. Like oh, I don't understand that. So I'd go out in the field and I'd – bark instructions all day i'd be make sure everyone could hear me and i'd be like i want to feel like i control this whole game of football even when i was sometimes playing at training and i might find myself on like the team with the young boys i'd be like okay i'm going to control this whole game and we're going to beat them that's and that's what i did like every day then every time i went to train with the youth team that's an amazing mindset to have yeah it's uh, do you know what it stems from and i've only worked this out recently it stems from when I was a young A-League player and I'm talking like 17, 18 and different culture, remember, when the old boys used to say, come on, we're going to the pub. <laughs> and I used to think, I used to drink with them and the next day we'd have training. And I used to think to myself, I, I need to prove that I can back it up and I need to prove that I'm the only young player that can do this. And, it, and, and it's getting respect in the wrong way, but they'd respect you for it. And, then I was just, and obviously you like that feeling. So I'm like, okay, I need to do things that I think that other people can't do. So like playing injured or, um, you know, whatever it was. Um, like I broke my cheek in the third minute of the game once and I was like, well, I'm not coming off. And I ended up playing to half time and then I, I had a bloody huge hole in my cheek and I was like, okay, I better come off now. Went to hospital, had surgery. <laughs> like, but I was like, all those things where I thought others can't do it that's where I prove what I can do and how reliable I am. That's nuts, mate. Yeah. I mean, it's not just mental strength, the physical strength to get through that. So I can't imagine the pain that I you must have I didn't know it was broken, obviously. Yeah. They, told me it was, they told me it wasn't broken. They just said, and I didn't have any blood or cuts or anything. So they said, oh, I think you're fine. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't feel my 
thought I lost all my teeth, couldn't feel my teeth. So how important is it you to be the best professional athlete that you can be? Because obviously if you're you're prepping that hard, mm. obviously it's something that you took incredibly seriously and was very important to you. Yeah, I did, but I'd be lying to you if I said I did everything right. Yeah. Like I was very good at like making sure I had enough sleep, um, was ready for the game. But there was a lot of times where I like I drank when I shouldn't, or you know I was hung not hung over at training, but you know I'd have a big <laughs> I'd have a big Saturday, and then on the Monday I'd have training. I'd be terrible at training because I you know I, I didn't look after myself. The one area that I was particularly bad was if I had a small injury or like a knock, and they'd say like, okay, you need to do this exercise three times a day every day at home. I'd never do it. So that's like pretty unprofessional, really. Yeah. Um, but there are the other aspects of things like where I obviously took it very, very seriously. Yeah. I yeah. don't think anyone's perfect. You do get those guys that are just like live and breathe in like ice baths and just like proper professionals. But what I found is like there's some guys that do none of that and they're just as good as the guys that do all of that. It's just what you need to perform is basically what's important because, you know, like, one guy, if he stays at the club for six hours and does an ice bath, does a massage, does everything, he might play worse. He might just be better off going home and just watching a movie, you know? So it's kind of like I think you do have to give people a bit of freedom to choose. Did you ever get angry or like annoyed? That like, Far out. I'm, I'm prepping as hard as these guys are here mm. and then some of them are taking it easy and yet they can perform even better sometimes. Did, um, that, did you ever get jealous, I suppose? Not really, not if they're on my team because if they're <laughs> performing well and they're on my team, then uh, I was pretty happy about that, but... Yeah, I don't know. Like you hear, a team's pretty tight, and certainly back in the day, I say that as if like I'm some sort of old fella. But you know, like if someone said oh, I went out on Saturday and I'm so hungover on Monday, you wouldn't say, "Oh, mate, that's so that's so unprofessional." Like, what are you doing? Where I feel like now they would. I think back then it was a bit more relaxed and a bit more certainly in the A League anyway. I don't know about other sports. I can't really say, but. Yeah, there's plenty of times where people did things they shouldn't probably have done, done but what are you going to do? It's done. <laughs> now, you would go on to be captain, of course, which is an amazing honour. Did you always dream of being a captain? Was leadership always something that you wanted to do? I mean, what was that like? I don't know if it's for me to say, but I think I'm, I've always been a, a natural leader. Yep. Um, I've always had some sort of... Uh, particularly on the, you know, like as a defender, you see the whole field. So you have to talk a lot. You have to, you know, tell people where to go and, and all that kind of thing. So I think I've naturally sort of had that in me. And I think I led by example in a lot of things. Um, I'd always hoped that one day I could be a captain. Didn't think maybe it would happen. But yeah, obviously to get the chance to captain the Wanderers was great. Didn't last very long, obviously, because I left quite quickly yeah. after Popper. Um, but yeah, to captain that team, it's a pretty, uh, pretty big honor. And one of the, probably most memorable things of my career, although, like I say, it was short-lived. What was it like under Josip? Yeah, Josip, like, again, like, I've spoken this about this a few times and I don't want people to think like I have something against him and I'm continually, like, bringing it up just to keep yeah. slamming him, like, years after. But I just didn't think what... Like, I just didn't see eye-to-eye -eye with him. And either did a lot of other people, but I was the only one, I think, that spoke my mind on it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I... I said he said to me do you believe in what I'm doing and I said no and this is in a private meeting and then he told that to the whole team mm. so that's not my fault that everyone knew like he decided to make that public knowledge um, and probably you know like you're telling the whole team that the captain of the team doesn't believe in you I don't think that was a very smart thing to do um, so it's a 
it's not very professional by the sound of no, it. And no, I think no. that's the thing. You've you've taken it incredibly well, and that's what I like when you're saying, look, mm. you know, this, this is not a thing between me and Yosep, you know. Yeah. This is just the troops. This is yeah, yeah. just what it's like. This is professional exactly. sport. Exactly. And, and, you know, like and since that moment, he's he hasn't really – had a coaching job for very long i don't know where he is now which is a shame for him because you know when he was at adelaide everyone loved him oh yeah he was like phenomenal he Um, he really was a cult figure yeah and that's yeah and and well done for that like let's give him the praise he deserves because he did some wonderful things with that team like and they and he sort of laid the foundations for them to go and win the championship under Moore. so obviously he at that time it worked. It's like any players. Like you can go to a team and it just doesn't work. Like you just don't fit the system or the coach doesn't like you or whatever. And then you go to another team and all of a sudden you're a star. Like I don't know. I think the culture of Western Sydney and the previous coach like Under Popper is just too different and it just – yeah, it just didn't work. Yeah. And can you explain like the biggest difference between Popper and Yosef? Because, I mean, I think it's even fair to see from an outsider's perspective you go, okay, Yosef's – pretty relaxed mm. he's, he's intense in a different way he, yeah. he he really i think the way i used to see it as a casual fan i'm like all right yossip really involves himself with the fans almost yeah. and like feels the the energy go mm. with it while popovich was dead set serious mm. this is how we're going to play and you're going to do it this way yeah the problem for i think for yossip was popper was so serious so strict attention to detail but it worked so well yeah and all the players knew that it worked you couldn't argue with it. Like the proof was there. All the most of the players that went, you call it getting on the bus. Most of the players that got on the bus with Popper played better than they'd probably ever played. The guys that didn't just didn't make it and they were gone, which you know is fair enough as well. But then Yossip came in and he was kind of like looking at the food that we we're eating. He's like, "Oh, this is boring. Like we need some more like you know cakes or whatever. Like <laughs> just enjoy yourselves a bit more." And like we're thinking, like, well, hang on a second, like. We've been doing things one way and it's been pretty good. Like we're a pretty good team. Um, and now we're going to start doing things that are against what we actually believe in. Yeah. So to then do something you don't yeah, – that, that's probably what, what it was to be honest. I've just come to my realize. He wanted us to do things that we didn't believe in. Yeah. And so it's never going to work. Even on the field, you'll say like do this. And I'll be like, well, that's, that's never going to work. Like I'd never do that. It's hard and to then do what do you do? You do you just do it or do you not do it? So – you just had all these people that had varying levels of like belief in what they did and and what they were doing. So, you know, going into a game, you're like, oh, we could be in trouble here. So, yeah, I don't think he's a bad guy, not at all. I had never had an argument with him, like never shouted at each other, never like got personal. I just didn't think that what he wanted to do at that particular time was the right thing. Yeah, and I don't know what was the right thing. It was just I just knew that wasn't. Yeah, knew it wasn't for you. Yeah, basically, correct. So. We head into almost the final chapter a little bit here now. So you, you, you've left the Wanderers, as you're saying, in the secret of all things. <laughs> I mean, what's it like in the first day when you're back overseas? Uh, it was interesting because I kind of snuck into the team hotel and was in a room with another Aussie guy who I know really well. And then like the next day we had uh, sort of like a recovery training and I just went to the training and everyone was looking at me like, oh, what's he doing here kind of thing? Like nobody really knew what was going on. And then I think that night we had a game and the Aussie coach wanted me to play. He's like, just play and then I'll see how good you are and then it'll be no problems. I'm yeah. like, mate, I'm not going to play in a game if I'm not signed. I'm like, I, pro- I could get injured or like whatever. And he was a bit like, well, if you just play, then there's nothing they can do. You're going to be – and I'm like, mate, I'm not playing. So that kind of just like 
made a little bit more difficult. And then um, eventually one of the guys who was trying to sign another player, he kind of called up, called me up and said, All right, let's go for dinner. I was like, okay, cool. So I went to dinner with a couple of other foreigners. And at the end, we all took a photo and he posted it on his own <laughs> social media to basically like take credit for signing me to basically be like, oh, here's our, all our foreigners. <laughs> like he didn't want me. And then all of a sudden he's trying to like be like, oh, yep. I'm the I'm the responsible for this. <laughs> so the thing is in Malaysia, all the lot well, ninety percent of the teams are state run. So it's like so it's basically like um Are you used as political pawns almost? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like um all the money comes from the state government. So if there's an election, they want to make sure the team's doing well to keep all the fans happy to then get the votes. You know? So it's 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 something And if the government fathom. changes you know, like liberal, labor, I don't really know much about politics. <laughs> if it changes over, then all of a sudden you've got a new president of your club, you've got all new, you know, they might want to bring in their own coach and their own players. It's like, yeah, crazy. I don't know if that's a healthy system. No, but... it's not. It's not at all. <laughs> so was that your hardest time, you would think, as a professional footballer, you think? Was that the most difficult? No, I don't think so. Um, I was kind of getting towards the end of my career there and I had a few <laughs> like niggling injuries and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. Probably wasn't the most enjoyable. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I had a couple of really good friends in the team, so it was it was good in that sense. And then once I retired, six months later, they went on to win the Malaysian Cup, which is the biggest trophy. And I was like literally on the field celebrating as if I'd won. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt I felt part of it. <laughs> you felt part of it. Yeah. I mean, it's good that they had that culture. You can still come in. Yeah. And where well, I mean, I mean, there's there's just so many things we could talk about. I mean, we. We better get to the last few bits just before we do the fun ones. I'll just quick, quickly touch on playing for the Socceroos. What's yep. it like playing for the Socceroos? What's that feeling like? What's that What's that feeling like? I've made the squad even. Yeah. What's that? Are you jumping out of your seat? What are you doing? Um, I'll tell a quick story. Yeah, go ahead. So I played for the Socceroos in like 2008 or something like that in Canberra. It was like an all-Australian-based team, A-League team. So that was kind of cool. But at the same time, I was like, it's not the real thing. Like it's it's like a B team. Um and then when I was playing in South Korea, they had a game in Korea. I was um, playing in the league. I wasn't in the squad. And then on the Monday, I was sitting at home in Korea just playing PlayStation. <laughs> and um, they called me. They're like, oh, we've had a few injuries. They're like, we came to your game on the weekend. You played all right. Do you want to come? Can you come into camp? Like, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. No worries. So I went up there. Got there that Monday night and then Tuesday was only one training. So I was like, okay, cool. Trained on the Tuesday and someone else got injured. And I was like looking around thinking like, man, all the defenders are injured. Like there's not many defenders left. I was like, oh, I couldn't play, could I? Like, nah, I wasn't even meant to be here. Like, So I ended up back at the hotel that night, went to sleep. In the morning, coaches come over and he's like, oh, you're going to play. You're going to start. I was like, oh, jeez. And, you know, he's telling me like, oh, yeah, you did well in your game. That's why we brought you in. I'm thinking, there's like five guys just got injured, mate. That's why I'm playing. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, played. First half, I sort of – it's not a mistake as such. Well, I kind of lost the strike and he scored. It was 1-0. Then they scored – then we scored 1-1. It was literally like 93rd minute, last kick of the game I scored. Yeah, and 1-2-1. So, wasn't even meant to be there. So, that moment <laughs> – is probably the best moment that I've had for the Socceroos. Yeah. Is that the best moment of your playing career as well, you'd say? Cause it was oh, yeah, definitely one of. I think winning the Malaysian Cup was pretty big because it was the only trophy that I won 
um, yeah. and it's a pretty historic trophy. It's like the oldest trophy in the world um, in Malaysia and it means a lot to them there. It was like 90,000 at the game, I think, something like that. Right. Um, so that was massive, like public holiday the next day and <laughs> went to the, the Sultan's Palace and all that. So that was a crazy experience. Um, but yeah, that Socceroos goal was pretty good. Got me some notoriety as well, which was kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> now, it can't be a Robbie Cornthwaite interview if we don't talk about that goal at the Asian Champions. Oh, was, yeah, against uh, Kashima. <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk to me what that's like, mate, because, of course, there's the own goal mm. as well. So does it make it more special that you scored that big crowd that day oh, as well? How good were those days at Highmarsh on a Wednesday in the Champions League run? They were like, well, I still speak about it now, it was like literally the best feeling over those like couple of weeks and months of just like wave, riding this wave of momentum like that. You just get in these zones where it's like no one can touch you. Like we're going to win no matter what. Like or even if we go a goal down, yeah, no worries. We'll be fine. Um, but yeah, I think the whole story around that score, winning 1-0, scoring the own goal, getting away with a one-all draw, coming home, thinking like, oh, it could have been one, could have won 1-0 and whatever. And then, yeah, it was a pretty cagey sort of a game. I was playing right back, which I sort of played a little bit in my career. And that like, I still think to myself like, that was from open play. What was I doing, like, <laughs> on the penalty spot, like, near the six-yard box? Like, the way the play developed, I just sort of followed the play and winning. But, yeah, obviously, that was a massive, massive goal. And you see it all the time. It's, like, replayed all the time. So, hopefully, that um, people will remember me for that one. <laughs> what well, What's Adelaide United like to play for as a club? Because I look at Adelaide United and while... Football isn't the hugest sport in this state. It's fair to say there's another sport with two mm. teams that have got most of the media attention mm. over here. But whenever I go to an A-League game over here, the atmosphere is incredible. All the fans are united as I've ever seen. And it's it's something special. I, yeah. I, I can't explain it. Can you try to explain it to maybe the casual football fan or even someone that's never watched a game? I think certainly in the early days and certainly now, um, I can't speak for the middle because I probably wasn't here here as much, but it's got a local feel. It's got a it's got us like a. It's obviously a big club, but it's also everyone. I think everyone feels connected to it. Yeah, like a lot of people know someone that knows someone that's playing, um, and you don't get that at other teams. Like I think last season they had like twenty or twenty three South Australians in the team. And when you go there, you're like you you, have, you just feel this connection to them. You hear about you've heard about them growing up, or like I say, you know a friend of a friend. So I feel like it just makes everyone really close. And I know it used to be called the People's Team or or whatever. I think it like it truly is. It's got this small town big team feel. I don't know what it is, but yeah, it's just a connection thing that you don't get with other teams. You feel like the players are like accessible to you. Um, and you're right, like a Friday night. Like weather today, perfect, 27, 28, balmy atmosphere, sun just going down, couple of cold beers. Like <laughs> It's like a little carnival, isn't it? Like It's it's like a day-night cricket game when the sun's just starting to set. It's, it's awesome. I love it. Even like working for Fox last year and the year before, Friday night games, yeah, absolutely insane. I loved it. And it's loud too. Yeah, it's, I think it's- the stadium is perfect for A-League. Like obviously we want, you know, like Bank West Stadium and for the Wanderers now is like, state of the art when it's full 30,000 40,000 is like incredible but these boutique stadiums they just add this atmosphere that you just don't really get to experience anywhere else and, and you're right on top of the field and what was it like I guess for the Wanderers playing for that what I mean 
is it, was there a same kind of feel? Was it a different feel? Because Wanderers fans, I mean, they are a. It's hard to explain, I guess, until you're over there. Because yeah. on the outside, it's like, whoa, these guys are the most passionate fans we've ever seen. And they've only just come into the league. Yeah. <laughs> you they're, know? they're intense. Unfortunately for me, I fell in between the gap of the old Parramatta getting knocked down yeah. and the new Bank West. So I was playing games at like um, oh, the showgrounds where yeah. the GWS play, playing games at ANZ. So it was kind of like it wasn't that great. The fans were far away. You know, you're playing in ANZ with like 10,000 people. It's 80,000 seats stadium. Yeah, so weird. Yeah, a lot of that atmosphere I didn't get to experience. Um, and the new Bank West is great. Obviously, the team hasn't been doing that well in recent years. So that support has sort of dwindled, unfortunately. But hopefully with the new TV deal and all that stuff for the A-League, you can see uh, um, them all come back sooner rather than later. Now, this question, mate, I, I ask everyone this who mm. ever comes on the Levers podcast. I mean, there's this idea that if you quit something, if you leave something, you're seen as a quitter. If you leave something, you're a quitter. You know, there's a negative stigma essentially attached to it. So the question I have to you, do you think people get too stubborn sometimes and, you know, don't leave things when they probably should? It's it's a pride thing, you know. They don't want to hurt their ego, so they stay when sometimes they're not so happy or anything. Well, I think the perfect example is family. You know, how many people stay in a family that they're not happy to be in because it's, like, unacceptable just to leave, like, and to walk out or, or whatever that may be. I think um, in terms of... As an athlete, like I, I wouldn't say I ever quit a team. Like, yeah, I moved on because it was better for me. And I think as well, like, and I think most athletes would agree when you're part of a team, like they're like your best mates. Like you see them every day. They're like your family. But as soon as you leave, there's very like there's very few that you stay in touch with. Like, there's a couple that you might stay in touch with short term, and then one less long term. Um, if you bump into them, it's like, how are you? Like, n- like nothing's changed. But if you're moving teams, even for me, I only played for, what, four or five teams. Over that time, that's like thousands of people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like rotating this team every year. And it's very hard to keep those connections. And when you're on on the same team, you're wearing the same shirt, it's like you'll do anything for them. But once you move on, it's it's very different. So I don't actually think, you know, people that quit things or move on, I think that's fine. But I don't like people that quit um, without trying, if that makes sense. So yeah. You know, like just say you're doing a run and it's getting hard and you just decide, oh, I'm just going to stop. Like I can't accept that. But the change of scenario, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. And I guess what would your advice be to someone who's thinking about leaving something? What would you say to someone who's, you know, trying to decide? Well, first of all, consider all the options. Make sure you have all the information um, in front of you and, and look like, you know, try to work out what your life is going to look like away from that. And can your life be better staying and, and trying to fix something or working on something or changing something? I think um, I read something not too long ago is the grass is always greener where you water it. That's a very so, nice um, And it's that old thing about it doesn't matter where you go, there you are. So is it you that is the problem and you need to develop and change and grow and make that scenario work? Or is it not working and let's go and try something new, which is also totally fine. But I think um, taking your time to make a decision is probably the most important thing. What an, uh, what an interview, mate. It's a heck of a story. And it's time to end it with some fun ones because we've, we've gone through some series. We've gone yeah. up and down and we've been right around the world, it almost feels like. So let's get it off with some fun ones. And I guess 
If you had to pick one team to play that you've played for over, for the rest of your life, who would it be? So who would I choose to be part of that team forever? Yeah. That's a good question. I think I'd probably choose that Adelaide United team that went to the Champions League like final. Yeah. Great young team. I was young, had no responsibilities, <laughs> lived with a couple of other boys. Like it was just PlayStation and like messing around all day, go to the beach and then just train. It was probably like the most, I wouldn't say stress-free, but it was probably the most, you know, no responsibility, as I said, and 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 playing some really good football. We made a grand final as well. Um, obviously, I wish we'd won those finals, but yeah. yeah, I think that was probably one of the most fun, most enjoyable times of my career. Favorite football ground in the world, and favorite football ground in Australia? Uh, I'll say Shah Alam Stadium in in Malaysia. Just be, like, the thing's falling down, but, <laughs> but just because of the Malaysian Cup final, like I said, eighty or ninety thousand people there. Like this thing, you know, you see videos and pictures and stuff of stadiums overseas where it's like a little bit too packed, like. The thing is like shaking, you know, and there's like boat flares. They're shooting boat flares into the sky over the stadium. It's intimidating. Um, and they all run on the field after they jump. There's like a moat that runs around between the stay, the stand and the field. There's like a huge drop, like concrete drop and they like jump over and run on the field. <laughs> so it's insane. They're like riot police with shields and everything there. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a, and that was my home ground. So yeah, I like that. That's probably my favorite. <laughs> Did you have a favorite dish while you're overseas? Would you recommend recommend any foods from Korea or Malaysia? Yeah, so in Korea, there's something called sangatan chicken. It's a whole chicken in a clay pot, like soup, like basically like slow cooked for 24 hours. It's got like ginseng and and rice stuffed inside of it. It's like the perfect cure for a cold. Um, and yeah, I used to smash them in winter when it was like you know zero degrees and snowing. Like go and have one of those. Um, what else? I mean, there's everyone loves Korean barbecue and brigolgi and all that kind of stuff. I like dumplings or mandu. Um, yeah, all, all that kind of stuff. I just I really enjoyed it. Who was your sporting inspiration? I used to love – well, I still do – Alan Shearer. Yeah. So I was born in Blackburn and he was obviously a Blackburn legend, goal-scoring legend, won, won the Premier League when he was there. Um, so, yeah, Alan Shearer was – growing up, he was sort of my, my hero – do you have any pre-game habits? Oh, I used to have a lot, but I can't even remember them now. <laughs> I, I, I knew that they were important to me. I had a few lucky charms given to me over the years. And I just kept them. I've still got them like in my toiletry bag. It's just like some people just be like giving me something, say, oh, that's lucky. And I just put it in my toiletries bag that I'd take to all the games. And they ended up just being like a collection of them in there. And sometimes I just like, I don't know, touch them or think about them or, or whatever. I used to wear... I don't know if it's a superstition. A lot of players do this. I used to make sure my boots were like so tight. I used to, like, you know, like when you get like your black, your toenails go black and fall off because they're so tight. Um, cutting off blood circulation. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I wanted my foot to feel like so strong and like compound packed. So sometimes I'd put my sock on and my boot and I'd go like, nah, it's not tight enough. And then I'd put another sock underneath and then just make sure it was super tight. <laughs> But the laces, you know, when people do their laces and the leather's touching, you yeah. can't be having that. It's got to be. It's got to look nice, look good, feel good, play good. Very particular. <laughs> Ever guilty of playing with your own character on FIFA? You know what no, I mean? I didn't do that. Didn't do did that. that. Oh, no. I thought for I sure. I always played Pro Evolution. That's why. <laughs> I was a Pez. There's some people that are so angry. I know. Right I know. But to be honest, like uh, I didn't. I was more like Call of Duty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was always on the cooler duty. Me and uh, another guy who's 
plays in the Socceroos now, Matthew Leckie. <laughs> we lived together and we'd like call the duty all day. And then when he went to Germany and I went to Korea, we'd play online against each other. Um, and he's like phenomenal at FIFA, like <laughs> unbelievable. He loves it. And there was a game called Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he used to have this thing on there called Terrorist Hunt where you basically play in realistic mode and you go around and between the pair of you, you could only die once. So basically, if you got shot, you're dead. And it was like, we used to, sp and you'd go into like a shopping center and you'd have to clear it. And we used to spend hours like, <laughs> I'll cover you here and you cover me there. It was like phenomenal. That is mad, man. Yeah. That is absolutely good, good times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your favourite Channel 7 journalist? Because, I mean, oh. we didn't get to get to it. I mean, but there is a media career in here. But yeah. come on, let's, uh, let's divide the newsroom. Uh, no, no, I love the whole sports department, to be honest. <laughs> oh, I do, I do. <laughs> um, I do a lot of weekends with Hazy, yeah. which is fun. Everyone loves Hazy. So, yeah, after um, after work, usually nip over to Enzo's for a couple of beers, which is always, which is always good. So, no, nah, Hazy, Hazy's good. I speak to him probably, oh, probably every second day, even if we're not working together. That's mental. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the next step for you, mate? What do you want to make more of a media career for yourself? What is the next big dream, I suppose? Well, I touched on it briefly. Um, it, it's to be a bit more uh, a speaker, I suppose. Um, again, keep an eye on my socials in the next sort of few weeks or a few months. Um, I've worked. I'm working on a keynote around a, a few very important topics and. It's not a how-to and it's not a preach. It's basically this is my story and I think there's a lot of things in there that people can resonate with and connect to um, and how I dealt with some and how I dealt with others better or worse or just basically my experience. Um, so that's something I'm really keen to get going and, and yeah, just continue to work on my craft really. As long as I'm improving or I'm – I need like um, – what's the word I'm trying to think of – productivity i need to like i don't like to just stay still so if i'm just working three days a week and i'm just doing the same thing every time like i'm not happy with that like i need to just continue to develop my skills and do different things so i got the i think i can say like um daniel garb and i will have the official podcast of the a-league now well the a-league's brought us on board as the official official guys so that's that's exciting and yeah just keep going with that Robbie, what a career has been so far. I think that's the thing. I mean, we're all guilty of just seeing people as players, but you've built yourself a nice little career going here. I mean, it wasn't just in Australia as well. We should mention there's a bit of media in Malaysia as well. You're doing incredibly well, mate. And thank you so much for coming on because if there's anything that I've learned from this is be adaptable and have the strength to be able to, you know, be brave and try different things. I think it's really important. I think it's really going to help people as well because you've had the highs, you've had the lows, mate. And yeah, just thank you so much for coming on. It's been really enjoyable. My pleasure, mate. Anytime. And thank you very much. Awesome, mate. Oh, heavy, heavy, heavy story, Robbies. I, I, I'm honestly a bit in shock after that one. I don't really know what to say, but... The strength of the man is clear and it sounds like he's going to try and teach some of us how to, to gain some of that strength and, you know, come through your challenges. But, I mean, I'm just going to let that one digest. And Yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on, Robbie. And, wow, the strength, I will never underestimate that. And thank you so much for listening and we hope you join us again on the Levers Podcast. This was a Smashed Gnome production.